Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today, we welcome Austin Coker, PhD and assistant research professor with TRAC, the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse housed at Syracuse University. Today, I'm excited because we're going to talk about what the data actually says about some key areas of immigration that hopefully will be helpful when addressing misconceptions or common myths or just thinking about and discussing immigration in general. So, Austin, before we begin, why don't you share with us a little bit about who TRAC is, who runs it, where do they get the data that they provide, and is it broadly available to anybody? Yeah, thanks. It's uh, you know, it's great to be on here. Um, yeah, so TRAC has been around for over thirty years, and uh, most people in the in the immigration world, from researchers to attorneys to uh, you know people who teach on immigration, know us as kind of the immigration data people in the immigration universe. And um, that's because we have basically uh, some of the most comprehensive and um, up-to-date data on all kinds of aspects uh, about immigration. Um, and it's important to us that we provide that to the public in a nonpartisan kind of way um, as a research institute, because as you said, there's so much you know, misconception in the immigration world about um, what's happening. Um, and so uh, track has been around for 30 years. We've been doing this work for a long time. Um, and we really got started in the late 1980s um, as a research institute uh, that was born out of um, government, the government transparency and accountability movement. So to take us back a little bit in time, <laughs> some really important context, um, after the Watergate scandal, um, there was a growing concern about um, the public having access to information um, that the government has. And one of the most important things that came out of that era was um, improvements to what's called the Freedom of Information Act. And the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, is this uh, really important, really valuable piece of legislation that allows any of us to ask the federal government for records that it has. Uh, a lot of people use this to um, have used this in the past to get records on themselves. So it's been really important at certain points to, you know, um, when there have been concerns about government overreach and surveillance, people have been able to ask for documents that way. And, and actually, immigration attorneys use this all the time in cases and working with their clients to get um, the records that the government has on their clients, kind of like discovery, you know, basically getting the documents that the government has so they can understand what the options are. But in addition to getting documents, the Freedom of Information Act allows us also to ask for digital records, you know, with the understanding that more and more of our government today is uh, is run not by paper files, <laughs> but by digital records and, um, and really databases, really large relational databases. So TRAC's whole focus is um, using the Freedom of Information Act to request that data and then uh, making that data available to the public in a way that would be, you know, make sense and to be useful to inform uh, public dialogue. 
So it was started in 1989 by David Burnham and Sue Long. Uh, David Burnham was a legendary New York Times reporter, you know, worked for years. Um, in fact, was uh, was part of um, was very active during the Watergate um, years uh, in terms of reporting. And Sue Long, who uh, is a, a sociologist and statistician, and was actively involved in actually writing parts of the Freedom of Information Act, um, involved in those committees. And so together, they formed a really uh, cool and very valuable team um, to to create track and and uh, and to locate it at Syracuse University, where Sue was um, faculty at the time and still is. Um, and so for the past 30 years, you know, as a team, they've been, uh, you know, getting these massive data sets, putting them together. And as, of course, as the world has moved online, rather than publishing them in print, you know, we make everything available through the website. So when, you know, when people go to our website, you know, we have, as I said, we have lots of data on immigration. We also have data on the federal courts and the, and the civil federal criminal and civil courts. We have a lot of data on IRS and IRS audits. Um, but of course, immigration is the big one. Um, so we have, as we'll get into, a lot of data on what's actually going on in the immigration system. And for the most part, the immigration data that we have, um, we make largely available through the website. The data is is so massive that there's no straightforward way to make all of it just like available at once to people. So we actually work with academic researchers and scholars and also uh, in-depth journalists um, on specific articles to to do more specific and targeted uh, kinds of analysis with the data. Um, but we, we we make all of the you know, the key parts of the immigration data available online. That's awesome. Thanks for that background. Those pieces of legislation that we don't think about, like FOIA, are so valuable and so important. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so let's dive into some of this information surrounding immigration. Can you give us an overview of the number of immigrants in the U.S. and break it down by the number of naturalized, so who are now citizens, maybe who has a green card, and then the number of undocumented, just so we get a sense of the overall picture of what we're looking at. Sure. So um, I don't have all of those numbers in front of me. Uh, we don't necessarily focus on on all of those sort of um, aggregate numbers, but just to just to list a couple of the key points I'll, and I'll explain a little bit more about the about how the, the categories can be a little difficult. So in the United States today, the percent of the US population as foreign born is about 13.7%. Um, that's pretty consistent with uh, a lot of American history, although that percent um, went down over the 50s and 60s and 70s, it went as low as uh, a little bit less than 5%. Um, so the share of the U.S. population that is foreign-born has gone up, um, and that as a as a number is about 45 million people as of 2015, which is one of the more recent counts, and that's projected to get up to about 78 million by 2065. Although you know it's un- uncertain exactly how that percentage will will shape out. So that's the total number of foreign born. It gets a little tricky because the counting with immigration is always a, a bit of a of a categorical sort of math problem. There's several Venn diagrams that overlap and also have distinctions. So um, foreign born is one measurement. That's a very common measurement. Um, there's lots of people who are foreign born who are undocumented. There are foreign born 
individuals on visas. There's obviously there's foreign born people who are naturalized. So those those different kinds of categories fall under that, you know, 14% or that 45 million or so. There's an estimated 10 and a half million undocumented immigrants in the United States today. That makes up about uh, a little less than a fourth, so less than 25% of the total percent of foreign-born in the country. Um, another uh, half of that number, half of the foreign-born number, are uh, naturalized citizens, so about 21 million uh, of the 45 million foreign-born individuals are naturalized citizens. Um, another 12 million or so are lawful permanent residents, which means they're uh, here and they can stay more or less as um, as long as they would like uh, and are typically on the path to citizenship, if that's something that they choose to do. Um, and then a minority of, of the number of foreign-born, about uh, a little over 2 million of the foreign-born population are, uh, are temporary lawful residents. So they're here on temporary visas. This includes uh, students, uh, temporary workers from, you know, agricultural workers to high-tech uh, workers. Um, and so those, those individuals are here on a visa and they're here lawfully, but, but typically their visa will expire at some point uh, and they'll have to leave. What about um, percentages of immigrants by country? And has that changed significantly? I feel like one kind of dominant generalization is that many, many immigrants are from Mexico or tend to be from Central America. Is that reflective of the data that we have? Yeah. So people who are born in Mexico and come to the United States um, is definitely, I mean, that's that's a, the largest population of immigrants. Uh, China, India, Philippines, El Salvador are also very high as far as um, numbers of people who are in the United States who are non-citizens. So that's that's true. The reasons why that's the case are historic. And so, you know, one of the most important things to sort of understand about, you know, high numbers of Mexican migrants living in the, in the United States is that sort of a product of very long standing historical, economic, um, and social relationships. I mean, you know, the, the Western third of the United States used to be Spanish territory. So many of the people who are, who have Mexican heritage, uh, living in the United States, um, have been here you know, been living in this territory longer than uh, many European Americans. And so their roots go back much further. And because of that, because of those longstanding connections, um, even when the border was, uh, you know, created and began to gradually become more and more policed throughout the 20th century, uh, families, you know, families still had longstanding connections across that border and continued to travel and even more importantly, more recently, in the 1940s and 50s uh, and early 60s, the United States throughout that time actively recruited Mexican migrants to come and work in the United States to work in um, agricultural uh, work, especially all over California, Texas, Ohio. And even after that program ended, uh, employers in the United States have continued to actively recruit migrants from Mexico and from the border region to work in places like uh, North Carolina. North Carolina has a pretty high population, growing population of um, immigrants. And a uh, big part of that is um, it's not as if the state was passive. Uh, you know, the, the state was very active in, in recruiting and bringing people um, to work 
in, you know, in the state and agricultural and, and other kinds of work, factory jobs and so forth. So it's not really unusual at all that people born in Mexico make up such a large share of, of immigrants. There's, there's some pretty unique historical relationships there. Sure. And important to remember that we play a big part in that recruitment. Mm -hmm. One of the other generalizations that I think is put out there frequently, especially in the last number of years, is that many or most immigrants have criminal histories or are to be feared. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what the data actually says about that? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, a couple sort of framing thoughts around uh, around this. Uh, one has to do with the way that race and racism have played into how we talk about belonging and citizenship in the United States. Um, and so it's, um, you know, it is uh, not new by any stretch of the imagination that race and criminality and immigration have been tied together for a very long time. You know, before it was uh, Mexican immigrants or Central American immigrants, um, Italians and uh, Polish migrants were viewed this way. Um, Jewish migrants who came to the United States were, you know, also stigmatized and viewed as criminals and were, you know, viewed suspectly. Irish immigrants also have have shared in this history. And over time, people who were, uh, you know, maybe initially viewed as different and as racially other in some way, there has been a process, you know, that that uh, researchers and historians note about um you know, this process of becoming and belonging in the United States. Um, and a lot of this, you know, important not to leave out the history of slavery and, and African-American people in the United States, too, and the way that those racial boundaries have played out in history that that has played into justifying some of these restrictions and these ideas about race and criminality um, and exclusion. So that's a so this is a longstanding sort of trope in American history that's important to just kind of recognize and, um, and think about uh, as an idea. Um, but in, you know, in practice, in terms of looking at, you know, data on this, um, so there've been, there've been a lot of studies in the world of criminology and criminal justice studies. This is an area that I teach in as well, um, looking at rates of criminality among, you know, uh, foreign born versus native populations. Um, and pretty consistently across the board, you know, what study after study finds is that there are actually much lower rates of criminality among foreign-born populations in the United States, um, but that by the second or third generation, oddly, um, the longer that families stay in the United States, rates of criminality actually um, go up. So the um, so there's you know you know if you wanted to think about criminality in the United States, there's something about being here longer that. Uh, that criminalizes people uh, more. Um, we look That's at this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's quite interesting, and and in a lot of ways, it it um, you know, it makes sense because even just from a conceptual level, you know, I've I've worked with immigrants for years, and you know, uh, I mean, people who are recently arrived and who are marginalized in many ways and feel like they're on the outside or they may not have legal status or, or these other things. That's, I mean, people are very self-conscious about this. This is, um, you know, it's, it's something that, that they are also trying to navigate as well. I mean, you know, they don't, you know, these are not uh, uh, people who, who came for either work or because they were seeking safety who are, you know, out to do harm. <laughs> um, but we look at that, we look at the data uh, around this question about criminality uh, because we get some really 
detailed data on, for instance, um, the number of people who are in immigration deportation proceedings is what we call it officially. It's basically the process that um, the government goes through if they want to try to deport someone. So we we look at data on that, that that has some data points around criminal history. We also look at data that Immigration and Customs Enforcement has um, on people that are in its detention centers. And it lists, uh, you know, they, they keep track of the criminal history that, that individual, individuals have on record. And so what what we find and and what I found in um, last year, I wrote a, a series of uh, sort of back-to-back reports on criminality within the immigration detention system itself. And there were really two major findings that I found looking at that data. One had to do with the fact that there's been a massive growth in, there was a massive growth pre-COVID in immigrant detention in the United States. Um, so we went from 2015 to 2019, uh, over just those four years, the detained population in the country went from about 25,000 to over 50,000. So it more than doubled in terms of the number wow. of immigrants in, you know, in, held in detention centers. Uh, 100% of that growth was a result of individuals with no criminal conviction on their record. The number of Wow. People in detention who had criminal backgrounds, that number basically remained constant. All of that growth was from from people with no criminal history. Yeah. So pretty, you know, pretty remarkable. Yeah. Do you have information about the type of criminal offense in an earlier episode we did on enforcement basics? I learned that an immigrant who is caught in the act of crossing the border is labeled as a criminal offense. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering, like, how many of those immigrants were caught crossing without authorization, and that is their criminal offense, versus what we tend to think of a criminal offense as something like a violent crime or some type of, like, trafficking or something like much more extreme. Well, I guess depending on your viewpoint, more extreme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the individuals who do have a criminal conviction on their record somewhere um, another finding from that, from that study was actually that even, even among those who have a criminal convic- conviction, most of them have very minor, you know, cr- a criminal record. And it does include border crossing, um, or it includes a very minor traffic offense, like driving without a license or having a headlight out or something, just not, not things that represent, um, serious offenses of any kind, um, so it's quite, yeah, it's quite rare that uh, immigrants in detention centers actually, you know, have what we would even think of as a serious criminal offense. Do you have any number on that? Yeah. So looking at some of the data that we have on criminal background backgrounds for immigrants in detention, um, ICE separates them into three uh, kind of offense levels with one being the most serious, two being sort of in the middle and three being the least serious. So among the least serious, among like the level three kinds of convictions, in terms of the data set that we were looking at at the time, where there was about, uh, you know, altogether, there was about 50,000 detainees at that point. Um, the most common convictions for uh, low level offenses were illegal entry. So like 23,000 people in detention at that time had an illegal entry conviction. 
10,000 had just a minor traffic offense. Uh, some of the more serious ones uh, were looking at convictions such as assault, burglary, um, still not even, I mean, issues like murder and terrorism uh, is, is incredibly few. So even at the even at the highest level of conviction, so we're looking at assault uh, with like 15,000 cases at that time, um, 7,000 or so burglary cases, 5,000 or so drug trafficking cases. Um, but when we looked at like election fraud is something that, you know, <laughs> there's this claim in elections that undocumented immigrants are voting, that they are involved in gangs, that right. they are terrorists. You know, when we looked at those, um, so we looked at across 500,000 detention records for one particular study. And uh, so, so 500,000 people in detention over several years. And out of those 500,000 records, only two in the entire data set had any election-related conviction. Similarly, uh, 68 individuals out of 500,000 had any terrorism-related crime, and these are not even necessarily successful acts of terrorism. These are um, terrorism law includes a lot of things that are not, you know, what people may imagine. You know, someone like making a bomb or something like that. Um, and then gang activity too was was remarkably low. Only 82 detainees out of the 500,000 that we looked at. Um, had gang activity as a conviction on their record. So some of those things which get talked about the most and are the most sensationalized are actually the the smallest. There's the just really, really small percentages. One other issue with detention mm-hmm. while we're on that topic is I think prior to the last few years, I think a lot of people would have assumed that we would treat children differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people were sort of... I think rightly shocked to find out that we do detain children. They are in detention. Mm -hmm. Can you give us kind of a number, how many minors are in detention at the latest kind of record? Yeah, that's hard to say. So there's two different ways that, that minors are detained in some way in the United States. One is with their parents and one is in juvenile uh, shelters. I, I don't have those numbers in front of me. But we do detain children. And um, to share some personal experience here, uh, you know, one of the most impactful experiences I had in terms of research and and being involved in this work was uh, working at the family detention center in South Texas in Dilly um, uh, several times over the course of a few years. And, you know, some of the things that really stuck out to me was just seeing, you know, people who were coming north from Central America or even from other parts of the world who are put in detention centers with their children um, as, you know, what, what the government calls a family unit, but it's not, uh, there's some, you know, really big caveats here because what they call a family unit is really strictly speaking uh, a mother with children under the age of 18. And what that means is that there are no facilities for fathers who come North, you know, with children or, or, or come with children requesting asylum. So when men come, they are, when fathers come, they're separated from their children, uh, basically as a rule. So we separate families and have been separating families for a long time. Family separation became a, you know, a big political thing during the Trump administration, but um, it's been going on for years. So we separate fathers from children. Um, and then we also separate children uh, as soon as they turn 18. 
So it's not unusual for children to come north at, you know, 17 with their, with their parent, with their mom, um, and turn 18 while they're in detention center in that detention center, and then get immediately transferred away to a facility that houses nonviolent refugees alongside a, a prison population with, you know, people with criminal convictions. And, you know, imagine being an 18 year old, uh, you know, suddenly thrown into a, what's essentially a, a, a prison in Texas. Um, uh, so that happens all the time, unfortunately. Um, there are facilities for children who are unaccompanied, um, and those are much less transparent because they're dealing with minors. So there's a lot of issues with, uh, you know, one of the challenges with getting really precise numbers here um, is that these are not public centers. Uh, and so there's lots of issues with confidentiality. The family detention center that, that I was just describing is a 2,200 bed, so 2,200 bed facility. Um, just to give you know, give you a rough you know, a look at at that facility, um, it is the largest or one of the largest facilities in the country, um, but it is designed for for detaining uh, mothers with children, and they are just I mean from seeing the inside of them they're just really completely uh, uh, totally inadequate for children. Um, our policy and our practice has been holding these families in detention centers for in the past, holding them for months and months and months, sometimes well over a year. Um, and so these children who, you know, they're in those facilities, they, they don't have adequate medical care. They're not getting education. Um, given the number of women and mothers who are in those, in those facilities, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was really remarkable is that the facility, at least at that time, um, did not have a gynecologist. Uh, or anyone who specialized in women's health specifically, they had some nurses on staff, but no uh, women's health professionals, which which just seemed like a complete uh, human rights issue. So we do detain children um, both through uh, shelters for unaccompanied children, but also much more prison-like detention centers if they're with their parents. I think a common question or concern is, if not detention, what? Like the concern being that if we don't detain undocumented people, maybe they wouldn't show up to their court date or maybe they would intentionally get lost in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Do we have data that can address that concern? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the detention system that we have today was built on the idea back in the 80s, this idea that immigrants weren't uh, going to their hearings. Um and this is just never, this has never really been the case that, that immigrants by and large don't attend. Most of them do. And I'll, I'll get to the data in a second. So just a, a couple ways of addressing the question. I, you know, I think the Biden administration, for instance, has to think through this question of what to do with detention. So the Department of Homeland Security and ICE, they do have an alternative to detention program. It's called ATD. Um, and it's where immigrants can uh, opt in or are forced in to having an ankle, a GPS ankle shackle that monitors them and, and, uh, and that they have to charge every day and they have to, you know, maintain. Um, so many people, when they are uh, released from detention centers, it's on the condition that they carry one of these with them. So that is an option uh, or, or strapped to them. Uh, 
it looks like based on the policy and reporting I've seen so far for some of the asylum seekers that the administration is allowing in starting very soon, um, that they will not be detaining those individuals and those families, uh, but allowing them to go and attend their hearings elsewhere, but that it may may well depend on them taking an ankle, a, a GPS ankle monitor. There's also some other uh, technologies that fall under ATD, such as uh, there's a smartphone technologies now where they manage their case through a smartphone app and they check in with their deportation officer and they have to be responsive and all, you know, these sort of uh, other surveillance technologies. Um, and finally, there's also a voice recognition uh, system where an individual has to call in at a certain time, you know, every so often, every couple of days or something like that. Um, there's issues with all of these technologies, like, like the voice, the, um, the voice recognition technology is notoriously bad <laughs> at actually confirming who it's supposed to confirm. So this is an issue. Um, so, but these are some of the alternatives to detention that already exist. The problem is, um, they don't actually deal with the root, uh, issue of the way that immigrants are stigmatized and falsely represented as not attending their hearings in the first place. So we looked at a, um, slice of cases from, uh, so we looked at 47,000 newly arriving families who were seeking asylum. Uh, and arrived in the country. And so we looked at 47,000 cases, uh, people who had had their hearings, uh, specifically people who had already had a hearing, because we, what we wanted to understand was, okay, if we, if we look at the people who have been released into the United States and have had at least one hearing, how many of them uh, attend that hearing? Um, how, how many of them attend subsequent hearings uh, and so on uh, to try to answer this question? And what we found was that um, of those 47,000, the vast majority of them, uh, 85%, almost 86% attended their hearings. They went to their their immigration court hearing. Um, 81% of them attended their initial hearing and then all, any subsequent hearings that they had. So you know, four out of every five did. Um, those who did not attend does not necessarily mean that they were ordered deported or that they absconded either. That just means that the court doesn't have an attendance record for them at their most recent hearing. There's lots of reasons why someone wouldn't necessarily, you know, why they would miss a hearing. So it doesn't necessarily mean that those resulted in um, in orders of removal or that 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 those individuals absconded in some way. Um, and probably the most important finding in that study, to me anyway, is that for those individuals who had an attorney, 99.9 percent of them attended their hearing. Um, so basically, if you have an attorney, people <laughs> go to all their hearings. <laughs> so the if there if there's really a question about how do we get uh, immigrants to attend their hearings, the answer is make sure they have an attorney, not hold them in detention. And by the way, this should be a good sell for fiscal conservatives uh, as well, because the government isn't paying for that immigration attorney, the individuals are or nonprofit groups are, are providing those services. So it's not a cost to the government. And the detention business is a big business. It costs the government millions and millions and millions of dollars a year to detain, build these centers and detain people. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's not premised on the facts. It's just premised on this, this fear and this misconception that immigrants don't go to their hearings. 
Speaking of millions of dollars, since the border wall was built, do we have data on if there have been fewer immigrants attempting to enter the U.S.? Do we have any data that supports that it works or that it doesn't? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we've we've seen record numbers of uh, of arrests and removals just in the last couple months. It doesn't have anything to do with the border wall. It has to do with a bunch of other factors. But uh, the border wall has just never been uh, a, a successful or meaningful strategy. And in fact, the border wall itself, the militarization of the border, is part of what created high numbers of undocumented immigrants in the United States today. And I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But before I do, just, just a note on the border wall, you know, the border has been has had versions of fences and walls on it for a very long time. And so a lot of people imagine, I think, that there is no border between Mexico and the United States. And then the government came along and built this massive impenetrable wall. And the reality is that there have been many pieces of border along border wall and fencing along the area where the border wall is going in. So it's it's doing more to just replace and in some cases reinforce, but it it's not exactly, it's not as if the border has not been uh, militarized or or as if there hasn't been a border there. It really is laying, you know, new brick over existing place. And every time the United States has tried to innovate some sort of like new approach to you know, quote unquote, securing the border, um, it it's it has not worked. It's never worked. It's never worked to deter or stop migrants from coming into the United States and crossing the border in those places. What it does is uh, it does much more to channel people into different parts of the of border crossing. So in in many cases, in the '90s, there's you know lots of really great research on this and some pretty good books and even podcasts on the history of the way that border walls were built through some of those towns, those border towns, and pushed um, immigrants out into the desert, which was much more dangerous. Um, so the, the border wall is not at all stopping people. And in, and in fact, the, um, the opposite has actually uh, happened. So because the border has become more militarized and crossing it has become more expensive, um, what used to happen before the night for the mid nineties is a lot of undocumented workers would cross over into the United States again, you know, recruited by very often recruited by companies uh, in the United States and different businesses in the United States would come in and work for a season and then return back to Mexico or, or somewhere, you know, or Central America. And so there was a circular migration pattern that had existed for decades and decades and decades. Um, it's a circular migration pattern that the United States government itself encouraged for many years. Um, but what happened once the border became harder to cross is that those who, you know, harder to cross, not it hasn't reduced the numbers, it's just made it harder for those who do cross, um, is that it costs, let's say, two or three months of preparation and, and getting across the border. And maybe it costs you $3,000 or $5,000 to do, to do that. You, you, you know, those individuals cannot just turn around at the end of a, of a harvest season where they're maybe working in the fields and just go back home because every time they cross, it's going to cost them time and money. So what happened um, in the 1990s is not so much that there was a growth in the total number of people entering the United States who are undocumented. 
there was a growth in the number of people who crossed and then stayed longer in the United States because they couldn't go back. And so they began to put down roots, unfortunately, without any path to citizenship for them. Um, but they increasingly put down roots and stayed longer. So we, we see in the 1990s a growing number of immigrants in the United States who don't have legal status, but it's not actually more people crossing necessarily. It's much more about people coming and staying longer because they can't go back. So ironically, building the border wall and militarizing the border in the way that we have uh, actually <laughs> dramatically created the growth that we have seen in terms of the total numbers of undocumented immigrants. And by the way, the number of immigrant, the number of undocumented immigrants has already peaked and has now declined in the past uh, decade. So we are like, we're, we are definitely past, uh, you know, any sort of peak numbers. So, um, you know, it was as high as 11.5 million, almost 12 million uh, a decade ago. Now the Pew Hispanic Center uh, estimates 10 and a half million and that that number continues to to go down because people are leaving or they're or for other reasons so yeah well thank you so much for spending this time with us and sharing this information to help us hopefully better understand some of the basic data available as it pertains to common misconceptions and just generalizations i know you have so much more data available so will you share with us for people who want to learn more or want to follow along with you or track for updates, and especially as we potentially have policy changes coming up, where can people find you? Yeah, so our website is uh, at Syracuse University. It's track, T-R-A-C dot S-Y-R dot E-D-U. You'll find reports that we do there and a whole bunch of different data tools that we make available to the public. We're also pretty active on Twitter, and I'm pretty active on Twitter and uh, online. We try to keep people up to date when we have data that's relevant to current policy. Um, we also are in the news a lot. We're cited, you know, on average two times every single day, 365 days a year by the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, etc. So we are, you know, we're definitely out there in the news. And you'll, you know, if you're reading immigration related articles, you'll probably see us mentioned um, and see our data. Uh, but anyone who, uh, you know, so you're welcome to engage on social media or through our website. And anyone who is interested in, in touching base one-on-one -on -one is welcome to email me um, at accoker. So that's A-C-K-O-C-H-E-R at syr.edu. Feel free to reach out and uh, I try to be as responsive as possible. Well, thank you again. Yeah, thanks. This is great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.